Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Punk rock was a thing that existed starting in the late 70s, early 80s. It was characterized by speed, speed of music, speed of dancing. It was characterized by risk, chaos, and violence. And now it's kind of a nostalgia thing. It's been commodified to the point where punk rock is an adjective that can apply to almost anything. And preparing for the show, (laughs) I found a podcast called the Punk Rock HR Podcast. HR is in human resources. This is somebody telling people how to use, I don't know, a punk rock attitude to fix the workplace. Uh, that's about how, as far as it's gone, but it could probably go further, too. We're going to talk about the charms of the original punk rock and where it has led us right after this. So let me begin with a little story. So it's like 1982 or 1983. It's as close as I can come. The one thing that I do know is what time of year it was. Because uh, I had been seeing around town some posters for a punk show. And it was being held on Good Friday. And these are crudely lettered Xerox. Poster would be actually overstating what it was. <laughs> I was seeing pieces of 8 by 11 paper from a copying machine. Uh, announcing this concert, if that's the right word, uh, and it, it was by a group of local punk bands, and they had some little pictures on it and stuff like that, uh, crudely drawn pictures, and it said, it's Good Friday, we're going to hurt Jesus real bad. So that's kind of the level we were at. And so what had happened at the time here in Hartford, Connecticut, was that uh, there was in the Frog Hollow neighborhood something called the Lithuanian American Club, which is a really, it was a big, nice building that had a kind of concert hall in it. It might have been a church at some point. I don't know. But So it had, you know, a big flat floor with no seats and then kind of a loft and then at the other, at the other end a stage. And it had been renamed The Lit instead of the Lithuanian American Club and the punks had kind of taken it over a little bit. Other people would take it over in the years to come. But I'd never been to anything like this. And I thought, when I was a newspaper columnist, I'm leaving that part out. I was a newspaper columnist and I thought, I got to find out what this is all about, and I'm going to do this, and I'll write about it. The headline act that night was a band called Jack Tragic and the Unfortunate, uh, and the Unfortunates. Uh, so I go to this show, and I'm up, up in that loft, because I could realize I don't want to be down on the floor. I'm not ready for that yet, because there's a lot of people doing the pogo and sma- slam dancing, smashing into each other. I thought, eh, 
<laughs> you know, I, I think I'll skip that for now anyway. So I'm up in this loft, and of course I'm not dressed like anybody else who's up there. I don't look anything like anybody else who's up there. So the people who are up there, these punks, turn, kind of turn on me and they start threatening me. I mean, not in a particularly realistic or meaningful way, but like just to be in character, to stay in shape, they're threatening me. And at one point, <clears throat> they kind of realized – you know, what my deal was. And so I remember one of them said, you're in trouble now. You've been set up by the Hartford Current, which actually could have been, you know, the title of my biography in those years, set up by the Hartford Current. But so anyway, I'm up there and it's just this very, you know, chaotic and weird scene. And I look to the other end of the, this is a really big balcony. I look way to the other end of the balcony and I see a guy I recognize who's the only other person up there who doesn't look like the punks. He looks like me. And the reason he looks like me is he's also a newspaper journalist, and he's a sports writer. And his name was George Smith. And, and he looked even less punk rock than I did. <laughs> he was just standing up there in like kind of a wolf jacket. He looked more like what was going to become grunge, but there was no such thing at that moment. So I, I made my way over to him, and I said, George, what are you doing here? Because he just like I, I didn't never I didn't associate him with anything like this. And he looked at me, and he said, you know, I served in Vietnam he said, and so I used to go to the bars in Saigon. He goes, and this is the closest thing I can find to what that was like. The implication being that these were also chaotic and dangerous places. And so George had, you know, become this kind of solitary attender of punk rock shows. I just want that to kind of hang in the air a little bit. Here's this guy, probably has a little bit of PTSD, but also has kind of a craving for the urgency and action of Saigon during the Vietnam War. So this is this is what he can find that's like that. I did eventually, I don't know if it was that night or other nights, but I did eventually go down into, you know, more or less the mosh pit or whatever we might want to call it, where that kind of stuff was going on, just to see what it was like. I was playing a lot of basketball in those days. I figured I'd be okay, you know. Because you, know, you have to rebound and stuff like that and people shove you in. No, 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 nothing like that. It was really dangerous. And you, because you couldn't predict anything, nobody was behaving in a predictable way and it would come out of nowhere. And the dumbest thing you could do was watch the stage, watch the band that was performing. That was a good way to get hurt because you, know? <laughs> you sort of had to look around and sort of see who was about to come at you. So I don't know. That was punk then. It's still around now. Uh, there's a lot of people on the show today who know a lot more about it than I do. Let's get right to them, starting with Legs McNeil, the co-founder of Punk Magazine, co-author of Please Kill Me, the uncensored oral history of punk, and one of the people credited with slapping the label, the term, the word punk or punk rock on this thing that was supposed to be both a musical movement and a kind of more pervasive aesthetic. So, Legs, first of all, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, you know, uh, this is like trying to nail Mercury to a wall, but I think we need to at least sort of try to explain to people, particularly people who didn't live through it, either because they were too old or too young, what it is we're talking about. What would distinguish punk rock and the punk aesthetic from other kinds of things? It was just really loud, obnoxious music that had a beat and um, was more attitude than musicianship at the time. And then it grew into musicianship as it went along. Yeah. And I think speed is a big part of it, too. I mean, one yeah. reason I, I think you maybe Nirvana wasn't a punk band was, you know, Smells Like Team Spirit isn't fast enough. I mean, even the way a punk band would count into a song. One, two, three, one, two, three. You know, it's, no, it's one, two, three, four. Yes. But, but when we started the magazine, we were more thinking of it was a wacky title, you know, punk. Yeah. To name a magazine punk was was kind of unheard of and uh, 
we were kind of going for the Simpsons, Rick and Morty type of humor. It was more kind of a supposed to be a humor and music magazine, cartoons and, and rock and roll. And people started taking it very seriously. We oh. didn't take it that seriously, you know? <laughs> well, how about the punks? How about the punk musicians? Did they did they take it seriously? Or was it no. kind of a dark joke about life? No. Um, in the beginning, the Ramones didn't even want to be called a punk band. No one wanted to be called a punk band, you know? It was it was a term of derision, you know? Right. It you wasn't know? it wasn't praise and, and it probably wasn't particularly commercial. I mean, punk is fundamentally an anti-commercial movement, or at least it seemed to be at the beginning. And the people who were doing it were, you know, notably not making enough to pay rent. Right. There was a way in which this was a really kind of hard scrabble movement by people who really didn't have a lot of resources. Well, no one understood it. And then when Sid killed Sid allegedly killed Nancy, it was like, see, these guys just get high on heroin and knife their girlfriends to death. So it was never put into a context, which is the reason why I did Please Kill Me, the uncensored oral history of punk. Yeah, where we we really get to meet a a lot of these people and hear their stories. But there is something, and it's there right there in your book, there's something fundamentally and almost intentionally self-destructive about punk rock, or at least there was at that time. And and by that I mean, you know, the, the band was often putting itself at physical risk and was, you know, would be diving off the stage under broken glass or something. I mean, the band was going to the ER. The bands were going to the ER with some regularity if, if they could. And the audience was in some danger. I mean, it was not, it was an intentionally an unsafe environment, one where you were likely sooner or later to get hurt, right? I never felt threatened you at never, all. You never? Yeah. Never. Never. No. Maybe that was in the suburbs, you know, where people, people, you know, were stupid, you know. (laughs) Fair enough. But there's also the sense that as your book kind of winds down, we're also sort of seeing that some of the bunk rockers, you know, there's a bill that comes due just in terms of uh, drugs and, and and that lifestyle, right? There's a way in which it's it's maybe not a genre you're as likely to get old in as maybe some others. Well, there's always a bill that comes due, you know, no one gets out of here alive. But the book starts off with Lou Reed asking, will you die for the music? Mm -hmm. And that choice is is made personally by the musicians and the people in the bands. And uh, some of them die and some of them get sober and live happily ever after. (laughs) So, you know, to, to describe, I don't know, the motivations, the ethos of punk was it in some way a protest movement? And if so, what would it have been protesting? Everything. Yes. You know, like today, you yes. know, the world sucks. Mm-hmm. You know? We're basically a bunch of failed hippies. Yeah. You know, couldn't get laid any other <laughs> way than put, putting on black leather jackets and acting snarky, you know. But there was a way in which it was also a rejection, I, I, I sensed it anyway, of hippiedom and also a rejection of what music was turning into, kind of a Laurel Canyon, you know, yacht rock folk, sound. Folk, folk music, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we had all grown up on, well, in Hartford, there was WPOP. Remember that? I, maybe you're too old. Oh, no, I, mean, I do. I, I, am, I am exactly old enough to remember POP and DRC. Yeah, yeah and DRC. So there was, you know, the Kinks, Hendrix, the Stones, the Beatles, you know, there was um, Psychotic Reaction, Count Five, you know, there was all this great stuff on the radio. And when we became of age, it was Hotel California. And, you know, it was kind of like, who wants to listen to that crap, you know? (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm laughing because we did an entire show years ago, an entire episode about the Eagles as a rock group that inherently invites divisiveness. I mean, people get in fistfights in bars about whether they're good or horrible or whatever. So uh, this is kind of, you know, an extension uh, of that. But, you know, was, you, you said more of them. It was more of the mood, you know, yeah. of, of them. You know, I, I, I'm i not going to I'm too old to put down the the Eagles now, you know, <laughs> what would and be the point and, all the other, and Boston and all the other crap. Yeah. Stuff. What would be the point? So, but there's, you know, you said something at the beginning that I think it's important to come back to. So I think there's this notion with punk that you get on stage, at least in your early days, and there's also kind of a a rejection of any kind of virtuosity, right? You're not going to try to play guitar like like Jerry Garcia or George Harrison. You're not even maybe good. God, no. God, no. And so what was, say more about that. Say say what that was about or how that felt. Well, it was. Rock and roll stripped down to its roots, you know, basically Chuck Berry and um, and Rumble by Link Ray, you know. It was just really good rock and roll with no drums. You know, Bob Gruen, the photographer who took the very famous picture of uh, John Lennon, said he used to go see Led Zeppelin and they he would, during a drum solo, he would go out to make a pay phone call because those were the days before cell phones to make a long phone call and he'd come back and the drum solo would still be going on, you know. <laughs> I mean, it was it was just Self-indulgent. It was very, very self-indulgent. And punk was not that self-indulgent except to the people's personal lives, you know, yeah. but not on stage. Right. And, and, and yeah, that, and that whole idea of compactness, too. It's, I know punk musicians would say, actually, if you were to look at our, one of our songs, you know, if, if it were to be converted into sheet music with lyrics and stuff like that, it's about the same length as a lot of pop music, but it goes by a lot faster because we play so fast. Uh, yeah. you know, there isn't that kind of idea of, oh, let's have like a, you know, certainly there's not going to be any 12-minute Grateful Dead, you know, or Fish-type solo-infused punk song. No, 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 no. In fact, Johnny Ramone once told Joe Strummer of The Clash, we cut out two and a half minutes. And he said, what? What are you, t- what are you talking about? From our set, we got it down from 25 minutes to 23 or 22 minutes, you know? It was people have lives and they have other things to do. <laughs> <laughs> You're, that's a good point. There are other things to do than sit there and listen to you know an eight minute solo. So. Um so you're you're there at the beginning, and you see what this is, and it is you know a fundamentally anti-commercial movement. But the problem with every anti- it was not it okay. was not anti-commercial. Say it more. It was just it was just not not the accepted accepted uh, vision of of what was commercial. You know the Mer- American mainstream media and all that wouldn't you know never took punk seriously, never never commented on them. No one ever listened to it listen to it with a with a critical ear you know right they just, it was just very easy to put down and everybody put it down until america's a big you know 300 million people it's a big place you know it takes a long time for anything new to become acceptable except maybe rap rap happened pretty fast because I guess black kids were a lot smarter and sharper, you know? Although it, it could be argued that the germination period for, for rap and hip-hop actually is longer than most of us perceive it. But I know what you're saying. It, it reminds me also, as you say, that nobody ever really listened to it. We haven't played any uh, since we opened up. So, uh, Kat, let's go to A2. Let's hear a little bit of the Stooges. Uh, this is from 1969. I want to be your dog.
So this is sort of pre-punk punk, right? This is kind of what was going to become punk. Can you say a little bit more about it? Um, well, everybody idolized the Stooges. I mean, the Stooges were were the punk band to, to emulate, you know, and be like, because Iggy was so outrageous and so wonderfully intelligent at the same time, you know? Right. And and so, you know, Iggy Pop's kind of an interesting, interesting example, too, because... I don't know. I don't know if you saw the Anthony Bourdain uh, documentary Roadrunner, uh, but there's a moment where he and Iggy Pop are, I think they're standing on a beach topic, talking. And, and so Anthony Bourdain says to Iggy Pop, you know, well, what really gets you off now, these days? What really gets you going, you know, the way that you used to be? And Iggy Pop says, you know, it's really, really what gets me going is when I love somebody and they love me back. You know, when I really, really, truly love somebody profoundly and they love me back, which is a an unexpected answer, maybe from a pop, but people have kind of a crude idea of who he is. But it's also you can see Bourdain's face fall because that's not how he'd been thinking about it. And he realized that maybe he's actually missing something. Uh, but but that's that sort of brings up the question of people getting older, people changing, people also in some cases becoming a lot more successful. So and I wondered how you felt about that, how the punk scene in New York felt about it as groups like the Ramones got commercially successful, as groups like Green Day came along and, and took that sound and made it even more uh, commercially successful. Did that feel at all like a betrayal or a fulfillment? Uh, f- f- a fulfillment. The Green Day was, you know, Green Day were, were always just Green Day, you know. They're, you know, God love them, you know. But the, but the, there's a misnomer in there that the Ramones became commercially successful. They never, they only became commercially successful in Brazil. No one, they, you never heard, you never, you only heard I want to be sedated on the radio every once in a while. That was, that was probably their biggest radio hit. But, you know, they had so many great pop songs. I mean, the, the Ramones were really a pop band, you know? I would and, agree and, with that, yeah. And those, and those songs should have been played on the radio, you know? 20, 20, 24 hours ago. so catchy it was so wonderfully 60s in a way you know 60s garage band kind of thing you know and i don't know why it was never played you know and people who got into the remote said why haven't i heard this on the radio and it, it was kind of mainstream america was you know there was only two ways to be in that time you could either be a jock or a hippie you know you could either be a stoner or a, a kind of right-wing jerk you know um, so when punk came along, it, it gave an umbrella to a lot of people, gay, women, you know, you can be whatever you want to be, you know, that's how I think the movement really succeeded in that it, 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 it made life bigger, you know? That is a great way to put it. Legs McNeil, uh, co-founder of Punk Magazine and co-author of Please Kill Me, the Uncensored Oral History of Punk. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, we are going to go out, I believe, with the New York Dolls.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Joining us now is, for the second time recently, we are very lucky and privileged to have with us Kelly Vassane, the author of Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres, a staff writer for The New Yorker. He was with us before to talk about that book. But in so many ways, Kelly, your musical journey begins a little bit maybe improbably with punk music. So let's talk a little bit about that. How did you wind up identifying as either a punk or a punk music fan? Uh, well, thanks for having me back, Colin. It's fun to be back. Um, so my, my musical journey begins in earnest on my 14th birthday. My best friend uh, gave me a cassette of punk music, and I listened to it there in my parents' house in my bedroom in Hamden, Connecticut, and it just blew my mind. And in the years later, I kind of had to go back and figure out, well, why did this thing blow my mind the way it did? And I think part of what it was was that punk was a whole worldview. In other words, loving punk meant that you could and maybe should hate everything else, right? It meant that other music was maybe bad, not just in an aesthetic sense, but maybe in a moral sense, like maybe other music was wrong. Maybe the world was getting it wrong and this stuff over here was getting it right. And so punk to me was always very tightly connected with this idea of passing judgment. And I didn't realize before then that you could have strong opinions about music, that music could really matter in that fundamental sense. And so I think that was part of the excitement for me, both as a listener, as someone who would go on to be a music critic. It really did start to help me think seriously and intensely about music. Um, One of the great ironies, of course, is that, you know, I get into punk and I start the first punk show I saw was the Ramones at Toad's Place in uh, Somewhere around New Year's Eve in 1990, it would have been. My mother took me because I I believe the show was 18 plus. And so the only way I could get in was with my mom. But part of what I liked about punk was that it was underground. It was obscure. It was just like me and my best friend, Matt, and a few other people. And it made us different from the mainstream. The irony, of course, is that in those years, in the early 90s, punk was going mainstream again, right? The rise of Nirvana 
really puts a spotlight on punk music. And, and you mentioned in the earlier segment that a band like Nirvana isn't really punk in a, in a traditional sense, right? The music's a little more slow, a little more rock and roll. And in fact, when Nirvana was an underground band on the label Sub Pop in, the, in, in Seattle, they didn't think of themselves as terribly punk. But as soon as Nirvana was on MTV, as soon as they were on the cover of Rolling Stone, they began to feel more and more punk. In other words, being in the mainstream, being in this world of top 40 music made Kurt Cobain think of himself much more as a punk, much more as a representative of an entire culture of underground guitar driven bands. And so he became a somewhat unwilling spokesman for a whole constellation of music that comes out of that punk explosion of the 1970s. But there's something, there's this weird irony about that too, right? I mean, and, and it just, it's threaded through the 40 or so year history that we're talking about, which is that, you know, increasingly this wild, untamable, impossible to domesticate musical and aesthetic force is constantly being co-opted and commodified. I mean, the Sex Pistols, they were sort of somehow part of the Queen's Silver Jubilee or whatever the hell that was. There's like, you know, at any given moment, there's three or four documentaries playing on streaming channels about the Velvet Underground or the Sex Pistols or, or whoever. Well, there's two dynamics at play here, right? One is this common thing that you see of a cultural phenomenon moving from the margins to the mainstream, right? And we see that all over the place. But the second thing is that punk itself was always in part a conservative tradition, maybe even a reactionary tradition, right? Punk emerges in opposition to all sorts of things, but one of the things that it emerges in opposition to in the 1970s is so-called progressive rock, right? And this idea that these bands are writing these long, complicated songs and they're borrowing from jazz and classical music and rock and roll is getting too fancy. And punk is going to be the antidote to that. So in a sense, punk is going to be the antidote to rock and roll progress, right? Punk is going to be proudly regressive in a sense. And a lot of the bands were looking back to the rock and roll of the 1960s, sometimes the 1950s, and a simpler, more youthful, more exuberant form of rock and roll. And so in that sense, punk was partly a musical reformation. It was a project to make rock and roll good the way it used to be, a project to reclaim some of the lost goodness of rock and roll. And that, you know, when you listen to the Ramones singing, do you remember rock and roll radio, right? The idea isn't that they're charting a course into chaos in the future. The idea is like, we're going to bring things back to the way they used to be when we were kids. And so that conservative spirit has always been an important part of punk rock. And it's always existed in tension with this other idea that punk rock is going to be wild and crazy and free and rule breaking. And so that tension is part of what defines the music. Yeah. And, you know, there's sort of an interesting thing going on during this period because there are two musical movements that are almost simultaneous. One of them is punk and the other one, which also kind of originates from the same population centers, New York, L.A., to a certain degree, London and, and other British cities as we go along and has its own aesthetic, has its own style of dress, has its own venues and clubs. And of course, I'm talking about disco, which couldn't be further away from punk stylistically, it, you know, I, I can't imagine anything being further away from punk stylistically. But there's a way in which these two m movements are both also perceived as displacing what had been very popular kinds of rock, right? Eventually, rock yeah. kind of lashes back at disco and tries to destroy it. But there's something going on there. I, and I'm guessing, knowing you, that you've thought about this. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were two, rock and I mean, punk rock and disco were two different reactions to, and maybe also symptoms of the fact that rock and roll was getting a little old. Rock and roll was coming to be perceived as kind of bloated, kind of boring. And there were many different reactions, but one of the reactions was punk rock, which was very intentional, right? It had a, a flag you could wave and we're going to join this music and we're going to be different. Uh, you know, disco had a different approach. The idea is like, no, we're all going to come together. Everyone's going to be welcome. Rolling Stones can make a disco song. Rod Stewart can make a disco song. We're going to welcome R&B singers and Latin music and European electronic producers, and everyone's going to come together. And, you know, there's problems with both of these, right? The, one of the problems with punk, if you want to call it a problem, is most people just don't like it that much. (laughs) Most people don't care. Most people, the Sex Pistols were not, even in the UK, they weren't that popular. In the US, they weren't really popular at all. As Legs was talking about, the Ramones never had huge success in America. The, The problem with disco, of course, is that it generates a backlash of its own, the fact that there, that fact that everyone was part of it, the sense that everyone's listening to it, it's the opposite of what punk rock provided, right? Punk rock provides you with a way to tell the world, I'm different from everyone else. Disco provides a way for the world to come together and to think like, oh, we're all together on the dance floor. All these genres and cultures are mixing. We're all gonna listen to the same thing. We're all gonna dance to the same beat. And often what happens is that at those moments when all these people come together, that's what generates a backlash. That's what generates a new a new generation of people wanting to find ways to say, I'm different from you. One of the things that happens, especially in the UK, is that disco and punk sort of merge in the aftermath, right? In the in the early 80s, you get what we call in America New Wave, right? Mm-hmm. Which takes some of the sounds and some of the beats from disco and marries it to some of the energy of punk rock. And you get a whole new generation of former punks often with colorful hair and colorful clothes playing synthesizers instead of guitars. So you see a new generation that way. And, and I got to say that punk endures on as kind of two things at once, right? It endures on as a sound, right? Like a band that sounds sort of like the Ramones is going to be punk. And it also endures as an attitude, a sense of uh, defiance, a sense of rejection. And, and sometimes those things come together, right? Sometimes the bands with loud guitars and fast tempos also have the attitude of defiance and rejection. And sometimes those things are separate, right? So you can have uh, you can have a, an artist who's, you know, techno or hip hop or something and has some of that punk attitude. Or you can have a pop star like Olivia Rodrigo, who's drawing from punk rock music without necessarily presenting herself as a force of defiance against the mainstream. So in that sense, punk has had this kind of split existence over the decades. Yeah, I I think the other thing that you see to that point is a lot of people who were, first of all, yeah, you saw it with the new wave bands. The new new wave bands came over. I remember I was interviewing a band, I think they were called The Records, and it turned out one of them had been in a band called the Rat Bites from Hell. And you, you didn't, I didn't have to ask a lot of follow-up questions about the Rat Bites from Hell. I mean, I could but certainly, yes, exactly. Although there was a big debate in the dressing room about, about whether they'd been called the Rat Bites from Hell or the fabulous Rat Bites from Hell. And it may have sort of alternated a little bit. So you had that. But Califa, now I feel like also what you've got is a lot of musicians who are not punk musicians, but spent time in hardcore. So, I mean, there's some pretty unlikely manifestations. The Dropkick Murphys, if you hear that vocalist singing those first few notes of shipping off to Boston, there's just no question he was a hardcore punk singer at one point and maybe still thinks of himself that way. I'm a star! 
or somebody like like the Hold Steady, who don't sound like a punk band. But I think a lot of those guys played in hardcore bands, and it's yeah. why some of their songs sound the way they do. And also generations of listeners, right? People that think a lot, maybe think too much about music are disproportionately likely to have had at least a phase when they were punk, right? Because punk is precisely, is always going to be appealing or is often going to be appealing to people that are trying to figure out who they are because it offers such a strong sense of identity and a way to think about musical goodness and badness. And, and, you know, something that people are trying to figure out now is what it even means, right? The, the rapper Young Thug released an album called Punk last year, but he, he you know, he's a, he's a brilliant artist and kind of a cryptic person. He never really explained it. He was asked in one interview, like, why, like, what is a punk? And he said, what makes a true punk? Not giving a bleep, speaking the truth, being your truest self, but then it can also mean whatever you want it to mean, right? So that's one idea that like punk is everywhere. It can be whatever you want. That said, like one of the most popular musicians playing in that style now is MGK, formerly the rapper known as Machine Gun Kelly, who's this white rapper who's transformed into kind of a pop punk star and celebrity. And I saw someone on Twitter just just now saying MGK is about as punk rock as an insurance salesman. (laughs) And that that warmed my heart because that indicated that this term is still something that makes people mad, that people want to fight about. And, and, you know, I think as long as punk rock remains something that some people find worth fighting about, it'll remain relevant in that sense. Right. Actually, let's hear a little bit of Machine Gun Kelly. This is uh, I Think I'm Okay. Kat, this is B2. Watch me take a good thing and mess it all up in one night. Catch me, I'm the one on the run away from the headlights. No sleep, up all week, waste of time with people I don't like. I think, I think something's wrong with me. Drown myself in alcohol, that shit never helps at all. I might say some stupid things tonight when you pick up this call. I'll be hearing silence on the other side. For way so, Kelifa. Uh, it doesn't sound like punk, but the attitude, some of the things that are being said there, I think probably yeah, do fit the Yeah, and he, he has other songs that follow more closely in the Ramones template. And, you know, he's known for playing this pink guitar. But yes, part of what you're hearing, and a song like that that's kind of borrowing a little bit from hip-hop, is this, this tradition of emo, right? Emo comes out of punk rock. It kind of arises in Washington, D.C. in around 85. And it, it's, it's short for emotional hardcore. Hardcore short for hardcore punk. But the idea of emo is that it is this punk rock tradition where you're singing about feelings, right? You're expressing strong emotions. And so to a generation of listeners, ironically, and this would this would astonish people back in the 70s, to a generation of listeners, punk rock means singing love songs. Punk rock means singing kind of angsty, melancholy lyrics about your love life. And, you know, that is one of the greatest ironies of all is that punk rock would, would undergo that transformation. In fact, For Young Thug, the rapper I mentioned, I think part of what punk meant to him was that he was going to make an album that was more emotionally vivid, maybe, or more emotionally explicit than the albums that he had made before. So the fact that punk rock to some people means love songs is one of the most unexpected twists in this whole story. I also feel like the earlier stages of hip hop, of rap, there was, I mean, there's not a huge jump from L.A. punk to, say, Public Enemy, right? Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant to me, yes, he's straight out racist, the sucker was simple and plain. Motherfucking in John Wayne. Cause I'm black and I'm proud. 
jam. Damn if I said you can slap me right here. Get it. Let's get this party started right. Right on. Come on. What we got to say. Yeah. Power to the people. No delay. Make everybody see. In order to fight the powers that be. I mean, like, Fight the Power could be the name of a punk song. And and there's a way in which maybe just the early stages of anything, there's a little bit more common denominator. Well, and also Public Enemy is an outlier, right? Because they are unusually close to the spirit of rock and roll as compared to their contemporaries. And you, you might say that they are one of the most punk or one of the most rock and roll major acts in that part of hip hop history. I think maybe not coincidentally, they turned out to be less influential than say NWA and the what came to be known as gangster rap, right? You don't hear a ton of hip hop acts in the decades to follow that sound like Public Enemy, where you do hear a ton that sound like NWA and Dr. Dre. So yes, that that's definitely part of hip hop history. And in fact, you know, if you talk to Chuck D, Chuck D knows the history of rock and roll. He knows all this stuff. He's a, a musical omnivore. So yes, I think that's probably no coincidence. Yeah, and I mean the you, the problem, the difference, one of the gaps between gangster rap and I think punk would I just watched the Penelope Spheris that first documentary decline of western civilization yeah, yeah. and so like so those good. those guys are kind of reveling in how freaking broke they are. You know, the lead singer of Black Flag is renting a closet for $16 because that's all he can afford because they don't make right. any money doing this. And so that that sort of the kind of Mandarin elegance of gangster rap and bling and stuff like that, that's the thing that sort of doesn't really find an analog, I don't think anyway, in punk. Well, often, you know, there are there are demographic considerations, too, right? The, the sort of the squalid glamour of punk rock is probably more appealing if you grew up with some money or with a lot of money. Whereas if you, if you grew up poor, you know, there's probably nothing to celebrate about renting a closet and a lot to celebrate about having enough money to buy whatever you want. I, I, I think part the thing that sticks with me from that uh, decline of Western civilization is the scene with the band Fear, where Lee Ving, the lead singer, is taunting the audience. And, you know, there's a real sense of like menace or potential violence, or you don't know exactly what's going to happen. And and even that question, right, if punk rock is so defiant, why are you interested in pleasing the audience, right? Wouldn't a truly defiant punk band be hostile in some sense to its own audience? And I think, you know, you, you were talking before about commercial success. I think that's always been been, a, un, been a, a subcurrent in the history of punk rock, right? To what extent can you create a band that's popular over time and giving fans what they want? Is it punk to give fans what they want? Or is it, or does punk mean always giving fans something a little bit different? And does that mean that the people following in this tradition of punk, if they're really doing it right, does that mean that they should sound different or have a different attitude from their predecessors decades past? Right. And and now punk rock has kind of become this adjective that is, you know, applied into just wildly, seemingly inappropriate situations. I found getting ready for the show. There's something called the Punk Rock HR podcast. It's actually about human resources, but apparently with a punk rock attitude, there's a well, punk. And the, yeah, go ahead. The hilarious thing is that it's used as a compliment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that right. would have shocked people 40 years ago. Right. If someone's like, wow, that's, you know, this is a new company. We're kind of punk rock like. 
meaning yes, meaning as a good thing. So yeah, yes, that, meaning, that's funny too. Well, well, disruptive became, you know, an accolade, right? And I think that's sort of where punk rock becomes synonymous. Yeah, and in, in the old days, it was linked also sometimes to nihilism, sometimes to far-right political beliefs, right? In, in some in certain places, and especially in the early days, punk rock was scary. And I think that is one thing that's really changed. Uh, whether you whether you love it or care for it, not at all, there's nothing particularly scary about punk rock in 2022. Right. So we're going to go out of this segment with Green Day. But I, I remember sitting, as I'm sure you did, in you know a kind of velvet-covered seat in a theater watching American Idiot, thinking, well, <laughs> this has kind of got to be the death of punk if we're sitting here in a Broadway or Broadway-esque theater watching something like this. It can never die. It can just stagger along, sometimes look tougher than other times. All right. Well, once again, thank you so much for being with us today. Always a pleasure, and particularly around this subject. Khalif Hassane is the author of Major Labels, a history of popular music in seven genres, and a staff writer at The New Yorker. I am one of those melodramatic fools, neurotic to the bone, no doubt about it. Sometimes I give myself the creeps Sometimes my mind plays tricks on me It all keeps setting up I think I'm cracking up And am I just paranoid? Am I just stuck? I went to a train All right, Cat Pastor is our technical producer today and every day, ideally. Uh, this particular episode was conceived of and produced by Jennifer LaRue, uh, but it's also all hands on deck here, helping out senior producer Lily Tyson and, of course, Jonathan McPants. Um, so thanks to everybody. Um, and let me just say also that when Jennifer first started to talk to me about this idea, um, I said, you know, I, I, I'm sort of less interested in talking to, you know, any surviving Ramones or something like that or somebody from Green Day or Henry Rollins or whatever. I'm really more interested. To me, punk rock, punk music, particularly as I, you know, experienced it from a slight remove in, in the 1980s, you know, it really is also this kind of grassroots thing, which a lot of people do and play and care about uh, and, and don't necessarily enjoy all this the, the perks of mega stardom. So let's make sure we talk to those musicians, too. With that in mind, we're talking to Amy Wappel uh, and Ben Social, who formed the Westport, Connecticut-based punk band Sad Plant in 2007. So first of all, welcome to our show, Amy and Ben. Hey, how are you? Thank you for having us. So 2007 might be considered to be a little late of the game for starting a, a punk band. Uh, Amy, tell us how that happened. Well... It is a little late in the game, but I actually didn't start playing bass until 2007. We've been involved in punk since we were kids, but I didn't start playing until then. I gotcha. So, when you, Amy, let me just stay with you for a second. When you say involved in punk, tell me a little bit about your history with the the music, the aesthetic, the movement. Oh, well, um, well, 1986, uh Ben and I saw, well, I saw my first punk show that Ben took me to, and that was the Ramones and the Queers at the Agora Ballroom in <laughs> Connecticut. Yes, know, know the band and the venue. Actually, Kat, let's play a little of C1 just to bring back some memories here. 
so Ben, tell me a little bit about what you heard and felt when you were discovering uh, punk music. I, I guess also, assume, presumably, in the 80s as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm 54 in uh, August. So, yeah, I mean, I was, I was, uh, you know, geez, early, early, early 80s, you know, late 70s. I, I had a sister four years older that kind of turned me on to the Ramones. Uh, I was probably six, sixth grade, first time I heard the Ramones. And uh, I, I, I didn't identify anything as punk rock, but... Um, you know, I just dug them. They were cool, and they became, you know, one of my, you know, favorite bands. And uh, you know, I, I guess I do owe, owe that to my older sister, who was, you know, like I said, four years older. So she turned me on to it. So you know, Ben, there's sort of a sense that punk rock in the '80s spoke to people who didn't feel spoken to in other ways, who felt either alienated or unreached by whatever mainstream culture was at the moment. Was that you? Um, you know, not, not really. I mean, we grew up in old Saybrook, which, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's an affluent place. And, you know, I, I wasn't really a freak. There was, but you know, there was, there was only a couple of skaters and a couple of kids into punk rock back then. And, you know, I was one of them. I wasn't ostracized for it, but, um, yeah, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't really a thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. All right. Speaking of skaters, uh, before we run out of time, let's play a Sad Plant yeah. song. Cat, uh, this is C2. I really like this. I would go to a sad plan show in a heartbeat. Uh, so, <laughs> so yeah, that was, that, was, that was off our last album. That was kind of a goof track. Like I only want to skate and play rock and roll, but yeah, I mean it's from the heart. <laughs> of course. So yeah, Amy, and that brings up the question: When you guys do a live show, and I know live shows have been hard over the last two years, even to do, like who who shows up? Who's who's still in that kind of mindset? Who who are your fans? Oh man, our our fans are are quite varied we've got anything from kids all the way up to 50 and 60 year olds to be quite honest with you uh it's pretty insane really yeah and ben do you get any feedback from them i'm not not sonic feedback but feedback like here's why this is why we love you this is what i'm here for here's what you do for me i i don't know that's that's a tough i mean back Back certainly when we, I mean, I've been playing punk rock since I was a teen. Amy got, you know, started playing bass in 2007 when we started the band. And, you know, certainly back then we we had a lot of kids interested in the band, which that's kind of switched, uh, you know, over the last decade, less kids, more older people. Well, the kids grew up. Yeah, the kids grew up. And, you know, back then had a lot of feedback. Um, you know, from them, whatever, we were kind of, um, you know, punk light. We were, you know, not not necessarily a dangerous hardcore band. We were just kind of a goofy, uh, you know, fun band. And that was the feedback we got. And we've, we've kind of stayed along those lines up till now. We still get that feedback from even older people that, you know, we're, we're just a fun band. 
Yeah, I get I get a lot of girls who come up to me and say, you know, I grew up watching you <laughs> and thank you. So it's it's pretty weird. Yes, that is. It's weird, but great. Hey, we have to go. Uh, but it's been uh, fun talking to you guys, uh, Amy Wapple and Ben Social uh, from the uh, Connecticut based punk band Sad Plant. Uh, let's go out with the Sex Pistols, part of the Queen's Silver Jubilee. And unironically, I think. <laughs>